0: Hello everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery channel of the New Books Network. I'm Steve Beitler, and my guest today has written a fascinating and challenging book. In 2021, Synergetic Press published Beyond the Narrow Life, a guide for psychedelic integration and existential exploration by Dr. Kyle Ortigo. Thank you, Kyle, for being here today.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm excited for our conversation.
0: Kyle is a clinical psychologist. He trained at Emory University and has more than 15 years of clinical experience. He founded the Center for Existential Exploration, whose mission is to help people live deeper, more meaningful lives. The center serves clients who are tackling the big questions about identity, meaning, life transitions, and psychospiritual development. Kyle is a certified psychedelic integration therapist. He works with a range of ethically-minded companies and nonprofits to develop information and tools for people seeking psychedelic-informed care in legal above-ground settings. Beyond the Narrow Life addresses major issues that arise from the psychospiritual spiritual and therapeutic use of psychedelics. It describes a core structure that psychedelic journeys exhibit and share with classic mythologies, religious traditions, and spiritual practices. Beyond the Narrow Life is also a workbook that can guide readers through their own journeys and the questions we all encounter. So with all that ground to cover, let's jump in. Kyle. Kyle. I'm curious to know how your training and early career led you to write Beyond the Narrow Life.
1: Well, I, this new psychedelic renaissance, kind of the, the term I know we'll talk about later too, of the reemergence of psychedelic research and practice in the West, and including America, was really an opportunity to integrate and um, explore some profound themes and issues uh, that have always interested me. Uh, As an undergrad, I was a psych major, but I also did some film studies work. And that's that's where I came into some of these um, deeper theories about the psyche and culture and the human experience. And that was always something I kept alive uh, alongside my interdisciplinary work as I went into clinical psychology. And I really appreciated clinical psychology because I was able to do that research, the theory side of things, but also directly work with people and and try to help people with a range of of challenges in life, including trauma and depression and dealing with these existential issues related to loss, um, uh, concerns about meaning and isolation So this book became an opportunity to bring all these diverse experiences and interests of mine together with, you know, how can we help guide people into navigating some of these big questions that we all can confront just by being human in this day and age.
0: You mentioned the psychedelic renaissance. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard about that, and I'd be curious as to how you would define the psychedelic renaissance, and how and where does your book fit in with or contribute to these developments?
1: So, in the West and in America in the 50s and 60s, in particular, there was a lot of research about psychedelics, um, both their, their primary effects and then their incorporation in a psychotherapy format. And then things were shut down um, for a variety of cultural and, and legal reasons. And then there was this kind of move towards the underground and, and then a reawakening in the late 90s, early 2000s in particular about it being worthwhile to study the effects of psychedelics on the human mind. And that research started in, in the, the more recent renaissance in end-of-life care and in hospice and palliative care and cancer-related anxiety. So that really jump-started, again, this new interest in researching the possible effects of psychedelics. Uh, but it, it's kind of a misnomer at the same time, because when we talk about psychedelic renaissance, I mean, psychedelics have been around in a variety of cultures for millennia. And uh, they never went underground in certain parts of the world. So it, it's very much a Western mindset when we're thinking about the Renaissance. But it the Renaissance is a nice word for it, too, because there is this aliveness and excitement about the, the transformative potential of psychedelics in the context of these very um, therapeutic encounters with intentions and the safety mechanisms uh, on board. Uh, but also may be something that we're exploring in, in more of a psychospiritual sense, too, and outside of the therapeutic context. So uh, it really is an opportunity for a lot of disciplines to come together.
0: And given the interdisciplinary focus and uh, opportunities and pathways, um, how would you try to summarize the main themes of your book?
1: Well, in terms of situating my book in that Renaissance, which was another part of your question again, too, there is one of the more mainstream ideas of psychedelic therapy nowadays is that there are three main phases that may be repeated um, based on the protocol and needs of the person. And those phases are the preparation phase, the psychedelic experience, the medicine session, and then the integration process. So how do you make meaning out of and apply the insights gained from the psychedelic experience itself? So I wrote my book to be independent of the psychedelic experience in that if someone read the book and followed the activities, they would still get a a lot of material from it, a lot of utility and deeper self-reflection activities. But let's say that the research and the policies are going in that hopeful direction then uh, in psychedelics become within the therapeutic or spiritual context available to more people, then it could fit very nicely in the integration phase of psychedelic psychotherapy. So the, the main three phases of psychedelic psychotherapy that may be repeated in various models are first the preparation phase, preparation for the actual experience, And that is the second phase, the psychedelic experience. And then the third is the integration, the meaning making and applying of insights into one's daily or weekly regular life. So in that non-altered state of consciousness in our consensus reality. So the book can work very well for that, that third phase, um, because this is a, a longer term, more individualized, personalized experience. So there's a variety of things that can come up for people in a psychedelic journey. And sometimes it's helpful to have some structure and, and really exploring some of the themes and symbols that emerge And that. And that can be very free form and individualized if the person has a therapist, for example, or it can be with some extra guidance like what my book provides.
0: So given uh, all the research and all uh, what I'll call the politics around psychedelics and their history. What would you say are some of the common misconceptions about this category of substances and their therapeutic potential? We'll get into a little bit more on specific substances in a minute, but as a category, what, how do you see misconceptions around these substances?
1: Yes, it's a really good question. I think we're now at the point in public discourse where we can start clarifying some things because we're finally talking about psychedelics in a, in a more open uh, way. I think one of the misconceptions is that psychedelics are automatically healing, and like what I call a magic bullet transference to psychedelics—that they're they're going to fix. All of uh, individuals' problems that are going to automatically lead to a greater sense of peace or connectedness. Um, some of these things that we hear people talk about because they absolutely are possibilities and outcomes for folks, but that's that's not a guarantee, and that usually happens in the context of building trust with someone uh, that that may be a therapist or you know a spiritual guide of some kind, and. Putting into practice again whatever it was that emerged in the journey. Sometimes these journeys are challenging, and the general idea within these safer contexts is that those challenges can still be very therapeutic and help people move through the material they need to confront the things that that um, are causing issues for them. Um, but I think that's one of the bigger misconceptions that is automatically a healing experience and uh, that it's really focused on the experience or the substance itself. And again, that, that bigger context is important.
0: So what are some of the main substances that your uh, book looks at, and how might you describe each one in terms of its attributes or its potential in psychospiritual development or therapy?
1: So right now we're using the word psychedelic in a a very broad umbrella term There's something called a classic psychedelic, which is what most people traditionally have thought about. And that includes what's colloquially called magic mushrooms, which is a variety of species of mushrooms that have psilocybin, psilocin, and a lot of other compounds. There's LSD acid, um, people call it colloquially. And uh, ayahuasca DMT, 5-MeO DMT, these are some of the classics. Peyote um, is another one, mescaline. And those work in a variety of ways. We're still trying to unpack like all the possible effects on the brain. But one of the primary mechanisms is a specific 2A receptor of serotonin in the brain. Then, so that's really what's shared with a lot of the classic psychedelics we also have mdma um, which is called on on the streaks ecstasy molly though it's unfortunately adulterated a lot more um, when people get it outside of these research contexts but that works uh it does have effects on serotonin but a lot of different parts of the brain the experience is often one of creating a sense of safety and connectedness um and, and trust And so that has been used primarily in the context of trauma healing, and now, uh, which is one of the original uses, in couples therapy. And this came out of a lab. This was developed out of a lab. It it is not a naturally occurring substance. So we we usually lump that into this umbrella term now, of psychedelics. And the research is actually farthest along uh, with MDMA for PTSD, MDMA psychotherapy. The third one that I like to bring up, too, is ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And ketamine is in its class of a, its own, really. And some of the effects can be like a, more of like a classic psychedelic, but it has its its own kind of flavor at higher doses. Um, but it can also be used as um, what I like to describe. It's imperfect, but as a kind of pseudo-hypnotic state where people are able to talk and converse and Um, explore some of their personal patterns and things that bring them into therapy, but they're not going into a full psychedelic-like state. And that is a Schedule II substance right now, I believe, and can be used uh, off-label and for treatment-resistant depression. So those are three very different types of substances, but this renaissance that we're talking about includes all three.
0: Well, we'll move from uh, three substances to four modes of experiencing. In the book, you talk about these different modes of experiencing, and I'd like it uh, for our listeners to hear more about that. I think it's, it's central to uh, the book. And uh, how would you uh, describe the four modes of experiencing for our listeners and how they fit together?
1: Mm-hmm. And I'll give some background on that too, kind of where that came from for me. Uh, This is part of the third um, section of the preparation phase. So the third chapter in that preparation phase. And the four modes of experiencing are an extension of uh, some other work that I I did with some colleagues on a therapeutic approach called STAIR. It's a skills training approach that's part of trauma-informed care, and it helps people uh, with awareness of their emotions and how their emotions are expressed and then coping through their emotions. So there's a model uh, in that work called three channels of emotion. So I expanded that because I believe emotions deserve their own kind of category. And I think there are plenty of thoughts uh, as a second category or second mode, um, thinking mind or rash- semi-rational mind, uh, verbal mind. Uh, that also can capture a lot of our experiences, so emotions and thoughts. And then the other two to round that out are our sensations in our body, our physical, physiological experiences that we perceive, and then our behavior. And our behavior is so um, intertwined with our experiencing of the world, and oftentimes we have automatic behavior, sometimes it's instinctual, that is a part of our experience of the present moment. So these four modes, it's a conceptual model for how to think about all the different components, major categories of our experience, much of which we just ignore as we go about our daily life. Many of us, I work in Silicon Valley, so this is a common pattern that we're all stuck in our head. (laughs) So that's probably true in a lot of parts of the world, but definitely is true here. Um, So how do we expand beyond whatever our proclivity is? Our bias to overfocus on one part of our experience versus others. So it intersects nicely with um, modern concepts of mindfulness and being present. Um, but the trick with this and why it fits very nicely in the preparation phase of the work is that it includes skills. I have skills that help us build awareness in each of those modes, as well as to actively cope with any sort of distress that we need to to work through or to navigate as we're going about our lives or even within a psychedelic journey. Many of the skills that I include in that section of the book are actually used for people who are preparing for a psychedelic journey. And it includes things like simple phrases as, as um, positive statements or mantras to help people through a, a challenging aspect of a journey, uh, like in and through is one of my favorite because it's so Quick and short, and it's capturing how do we not avoid difficult emotions or difficult experiences, but not get wrapped up and sucked into it, into a downward spiral. So that in and through is a good example there.
0: So given um, the potentialities of these substances, how do you compare what psychedelics uh, offer uh, compared with other treatment modalities, are there things that psychedelics can offer patients that other treatment modalities cannot?
1: It's a really good question, and one that I'm hoping as the research continues, we can really nail down more and more. Uh, the answer is probably going to be you know, there are multiple uh, pathways that these psychedelics, just like other types of therapy, can help people. One of the things that I think is pretty distinct and hard to ignore about psychedelic psychotherapy is that the experience itself is very powerful. So it's harder to avoid, not impossible, but harder to avoid the deeper experiencing of our emotions. It's harder to um, escape some of the parts of our minds that we can more easily in everyday life kind of push aside or ignore um, parts of our implicit or unconscious experience. So I think the, the power of the experience itself is a big part of it. I think for people who are confronting some of the depression or uh, existential distress in life, it's about a sense of re-enchantment of possibility of, of the unknown. That can be very healing because a lot of times with depression um, and anxiety, it is a hyper focus on uh, the things that are, are stressing us out or that we we don't have a lot of hope around. It's a sense that you know there's no mystery in life again, there's no possibility, and I think that's something that psychedelic experiences often confront and challenge.
0: Well, your use of uh, reenchantment. Uh, brings to mind a couple of um, giants in the field who are very important uh, to the book and to a lot of work. And I would like you to talk a little bit about uh, the importance of the ideas of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell uh, to not, not just the book, but the larger themes that you're addressing.
1: Yeah. These are two theorists that I came across because of my film studies work. And if I hadn't done film studies, I honestly don't know if I would have read anything about them in my mainstream psychology work. So it's an exciting time for me because these, these theorists are being discussed and, and brought into the work because the, the psychedelic psychotherapy is, is really you know bringing in the depths and the, the sense of mystery of the unconscious again. To mainstream psychotherapy. Carl Jung uh, was important to, to my own development professionally and personally because he, among many other things, talked about the lifelong process of our personality growth and change and development. So unlike a lot of theorists that had a developmental lens, which is mine as well, um, childhood's not the end. Right, we continue. It should be self evident to a lot like, of us who are adults.
0: Let's hope not.
1: Right? Exactly. It's <laughs> so like that. We still change. We can change in profound ways too as we get older and confront different things and just gain more experiences if we're open to that process of, of growth and um, possible expansion. And so that was a big part of Jung's ideas of, about the psyche and the human experience. He has this uh, term individuation for that lifelong process that is a big influence in my book. The, and that stands for the idea of becoming more psychologically whole. So it's an ongoing process. It never ends. It's you know, from, from birth to or the end of our lives to death of really expanding um, our, our personality and our um, awareness and integrating different parts of ourselves. So Joseph Campbell was not a psychologist, but he was influenced by Freud and Jung. But what I really appreciate about Campbell's work, which is still um, being updated by different theorists now, usually outside of academia, but his real push was for this idea that there is something that's underlining all the world's major religions and mythologies Uh, that is speaking to something that is true in some sense about the human experience, about the nature of the cosmos. And this story, this um, so-called truth, is described through uh, symbols, uh, symbolic stories of uh, the hero, but not just the hero, the classic hero in in our Western ideas, Um, but this idea that there's this unfolding story that we're all a part of in some way and they're like Jung and and a lot of theories and big ideas we can read these in different ways you know what is the underlying meaning and, and cause of that idea but it's that notion that is most exciting to me I structured my book on the broad what I call the broad strokes version of the hero's journey the three main acts which are departure the initiation and then the return, which I saw immediately as being very parallel to the preparation work, the medicine session, and integration. So that that was a big influence in in the book and is talked about too.
0: And as sort of a follow on uh, particularly to Jung, um, I'd like you to talk about the importance of the shadow and its role in psychological awareness and psychological growth. Um, How would you describe the importance of the shadow in all this?
1: The shadow is probably the single most important aspect of the adult uh, phases, so to speak, of the individuation process. And Jung described the shadow in a variety of ways. Um, It could be seen; the shadow as the, the parts of ourselves that we're unaware of. So it's in the shadow. And that uh, most generic way, it is also the parts of ourselves that we do not like, uh, we undervalue, we judge, and by default is projected onto other people or even groups of people. So all those isms that that we're confronting very explicitly and have throughout human history, but in modern times, racism, sexism, um, homophobia, transphobia, all this These various versions of in-group, out-group thinking, I think a lot are about the shadow play and how we can project these things onto other people. Part of the individuation process, that maturing process is to recognize that these projections onto others are also telling us about parts of ourselves that we are not really confronting or exploring or acknowledging. And that doesn't mean that then we become the shadows that we, we go to the other side, so to speak. But we we start to retract those projections, and to start to work through that process of figuring out what are these different parts of ourselves, you know, if I am someone that doesn't like to get angry, but when I get really frustrated, when I see other people get angry, then maybe there's some work I need to do about my own anger, that's not being felt or expressed. Um, because anger, like other emotions are just part of the human experience. So it's not about acting out of that anger, but really exploring it. It's just one of endless examples. So this, uh, what's called shadow work, is um, you know, big umbrella too of various ways of exploring those parts of ourselves. Not all of them are necessarily dangerous, but for Jung, he he went because he talked about layers of the unconscious, and uh, he went all the way to like the problem of evil, the the big philosophical. A theological question that people confront, like the problem of evil could be framed in terms of um, exploring the shadow at a collective level. So it, it's a really important part in one of the more challenging kind of gateways if there is such a thing into that individuation process. Um, but I, I think is important in the psychedelic world, too, as we see these things become spoken about finally coming out of the shadow of, of society and more in this above-ground uh, mainstream research, uh, there are things that are being left behind and things that we need to, to figure out that are being spoken about now, I think, in the last year especially. So that that's good. But it, it's a painful process at the same time.
0: By definition. And sort of as a follow-on, Kyle, I'm curious about how uh, the psychological notion of projection fits into either the shadow work or your larger framework? Because we hear a lot lately about projection uh, in individuals and in political discourse. And I'm wondering how uh, the notion of projection might fit in or not fit in to what you're describing.
1: Mm-hmm. It it fits in very nicely. And, you know, projection, there are many things that we can project and see in other people, other situations that that are really a a part of ourselves, maybe not only a part of ourselves, but are also a part of, you know, our, our psyche, our experience, our history. So the shadow is one of those bigger things that can be projected, but we can project positive things onto other people, too. Um, in a way that can also be detrimental for idealizing other people and not seeing the full complexity of others or full complexity of ourselves. Uh, Projection is a defense mechanism, a protective mechanism that is usually pretty much by definition unconscious. Uh, It's one that we all really have at some point in our lives, and it continues to be part of that bigger toolkit that we have. Um, So the idea of healing from these projection or finding alternatives to projection is like with other less mature or sophisticated or helpful defense mechanisms is to make them conscious and then find alternatives to to working through that so that we can make conscious, more values driven decisions in our lives about how we work through some of these challenges.
0: Yeah. What I wanted to uh, ask you about next is uh, a phrase you used uh, toward the end of the book. Uh, You referred to uh, a global crisis of meaning, and given the importance of meaning to all that you're describing, and uh, given uh, the centrality of meaning to this quest, I'm curious about Uh, how you uh, feel we're in a global crisis of meaning at this point.
1: You know, like a lot of things in the human experience, you know, some of this isn't as new maybe as it feels to us, because this is is the reality we know, right, (laughs) in this day and age.
0: It's all Uh, we've ever known. (laughs)
1: It's all we've ever known, yeah. (laughs) So some of these comparisons are challenging. But I think what is different in the vast... History of human experiences, we are confronting so many different worldviews, um, influenced by cultures and religions, and this has been the case, you know, when, when smaller uh, interactions between different communities, religious groups, it's happened, tribes, even in the past, but now it, it's happening kind of all at once because of we have access to all all these possibilities, and you know. Even for the smartest of us, this is overwhelming to really, you know, start to question some of our fundamental assumptions that we all have about how the world is, how life is, who we are, um, where we're going, where we've been. And so I think this crisis of meaning is, is when we're really confronting ambiguity and uncertainty. And I think in a more honest way. Than maybe we have in the past. Because we we can't, I mean, a lot of people do, <laughs> they find ways to, but we can't really sit just in our echo chambers, just in our little tribes, you know, our community of 15 people, and and hold on to that belief that that we understand everything. You know, that that's that's not a real, it's certainly not an honest option nowadays. So how do we work through and accept some of this ambiguity while still having enough ground on which to walk and to make decisions about our life and our world and confront some of these major complex problems? This, this is the question, and it's not one that I or anyone else has an answer to, but it's building, I think, part of the process is building our tolerance of this ambiguity and this uncertainty while still having that sense of possibility and enchantment. Right, it's seeing the big picture, and and not giving up, still finding ways to engage in life. And oftentimes, it is the simple things, you know, having that cup of coffee in the morning, really hugging our partners, um, doing the things that we were afraid to do, but feel meaningful to do at the same time. And that that's an individual journey, but we're all in the same boat in that way. This planet Earth.
0: Well, I appreciate that, and. Um... It it would be a different world if the echo chambers were hermetically sealed, but they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So beyond reading your book, how would you suggest that people uh, go about learning more about either the substances or the larger movement or the research? Um, What would you advise listeners to do in terms of next steps?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there there is because it's being spoken about a lot more recently. There are a lot of resources out there. So, if books are your thing, there, there are several good books uh, to check out. Um, some that are very old, too, right? A lot of this stuff isn't new. Um, but there are some more recent books that have more of a journalist bent, like, of course, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, people are very familiar with people who are interested in the psycho-spiritual aspects of it. Uh, I, I would point to one of my mentors in the field, Bill Richard's sacred knowledge. Um, but, but there are many others and many more that will be coming out. Uh, there are some for professionals. There are some online trainings now that are good. Psychedelic.support is a resource where they have some continuing education uh, programs that, that are helpful. There are lots of certificate programs that are popping up now. So it's kind of weeding through what your needs are, what your goals are. You can dip your toes in uh, to some of the resources that are out there and free online um, from reputable news sources. There are some free research articles if you have that bin to go down to. Um, but I think Talking in in one's community, learning from people and their own experiences, if they've had psychedelic journeys, there are parts of the country that uh, this has been legal um, and more open. Certainly the Netherlands is is one of those. So there are lots of wisdom from people outside of the research community. There are a lot of indigenous communities, and those are very diverse, right? We use this word indigenous as it captures all of this. Um, But there are many different uh, traditional uses of psychedelics spanning different time periods. So, uh, you know, these, these, of course, the book I, I wrote is just like tip of the iceberg. And, you know, there are a lot of other references in there that I point people to. But what I think is important, no matter what path you choose, is that there's some personalization, some experiential component of the journey. And that's why I have so many activities, because those are where we really get into what's important to us and our experience and our journey through life.
0: Well, Kyle, I think that's a great place for us to end. I want to congratulate you on the book and commend you for everything that has gone into it. Uh, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today. And thanks to all of you out there for joining us at the New Books Network. Take care, and we will see you down the road.